welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now it's time for our reading in the New Testament. And it comes from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 13 through 37. We'll read that Chorazin was a city near the Sea of Galilee, probably about two miles north of Capernaum. Tyre and Sidon were cities destroyed by God as punishment for their wickedness. That's back in the book of Ezekiel. Now, Capernaum was Jesus' base for his Galilean ministry. The city was located at an important crossroads used by traders and the Roman army. So a message proclaimed in Capernaum was likely to go pretty far. Many people of Capernaum did not understand Jesus' miracles or believe his teaching, however, and the city was included among those who would be judged for rejecting him. The disciples had seen tremendous results as they ministered in Jesus' name and with his authority. They were elated by the victories they had witnessed, and Jesus shared their enthusiasm. He helped them get their priorities right, however, by reminding them of their most important victory, and that is the fact that their names were written in the book of life in heaven. Now, this honor was more important than any of their accomplishments. You know, as we see God's wonders at work in and through us, now, let's not lose sight of the greatest wonder of all, our heavenly eternal citizenship. And we'll read about the man who was wounded and left for dead. The illegal expert viewed the wounded man as a topic for discussion, the bandits as an object to exploit, the priest as a problem to avoid, and the temple assistant as an object of curiosity. Only the Samaritan treated him as a person to love and care for. Now, from the illustration, we learn three principles about loving our neighbor. Number one, lack of love is often easy to justify, even though it's never right. Number two, our neighbor is anyone of any race, creed, or social background who is in need. And number three, love means acting to meet the person's need. Wherever you live, needy people are close by. And there is no good reason for refusing to help. And with that, let's begin our reading here today in the New Testament. April 3rd, the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 37. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. Then he said to the disciples, Anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me, and anyone who rejects you is rejecting me, and anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. When the seventy-two disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. At that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. 
My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then when they were alone, He turned to the disciples and said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. I tell you, many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it, and they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day... He handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. Psalm 75 Verses 1 through 10. Here is a brief commentary on what we'll be reading here in the Psalms today. God will act when He is ready. Children have difficulty grasping the concept of time. It's not time yet is not a reason they easily understand because they only comprehend the present. As limited human beings, we cannot understand God's perspective about time. We want everything now, unaware that God's timing is better. When God is ready, He will do what needs to be done, not what we would like Him to do. We may be as impatient as children, but we must not doubt the wisdom of God's timing. Wait for God to reveal His plan. Don't take matters into your own hands. God will have the last word, and He'll decide the final outcome, settling all matters that concern both the wicked and the godly. The former will eventually experience his judgment. The latter will experience his faithful love. No matter how dark the days you face, make it your continual practice to acknowledge God's sovereignty over your world. Tell him regularly how grateful you are that he has the final word. Psalm 75, verses 1 through 10. For the choir director, a psalm of Asaph. A song to be sung to the tune... Do not destroy. We thank you, O God, 
We give thanks because you are near. People everywhere tell of your wonderful deeds. God says, At the time I have planned, I will bring justice against the wicked. When the earth quakes and its people live in turmoil, I am the one who keeps its foundations firm. Interlude I warned the proud, stop your boasting. I told the wicked, don't raise your fists. Don't raise your fists in defiance of the heavens or speak with such arrogance. For no one on earth from east or west or even from the wilderness should raise a defiant fist. It is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. For the Lord holds a cup in His hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment, and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. But as for me, I will always proclaim what God has done. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, for God says, I will break the strength of the wicked, but I will increase the power of the godly. Proverbs chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. Thieves are jealous of each other's loot, but the godly are well-rooted and bear their own fruit. The wicked are trapped by their own words, but the godly escape such trouble. Wise words bring many benefits, and hard work brings rewards. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesChanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio, and have a blessed day. So I always like to start with a background of where we're at to kind of give a context for the Scripture. Because I know sometimes I get a little glazed over um, in the, in, as I'm reading through a Scripture and things like that. So, And if you haven't been here for the previous episodes of this season's uh, story, then um, we can kind of catch you up to this point also. Okay, so the book of Acts itself is hugely important in the, in the New Testament especially, but in, in terms of the Bible, because um, pretty much from Romans to Revelation, which the book after Acts till the end of the Bible, the context of those books, the history of it, is the book of Acts. So the book of Acts was written about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, from beginning to end, chapter 1 to chapter 28, the book of Acts itself is about 30 years. So it was written uh, supposedly about a year after the last event, um, the last events in the book of Acts. Um, so basically, Paul is writing a letter to his friend Theophilus, and so I just kind of envision like this older man with kind of like quill and parchment in hand, or maybe he has his scribe doing it because, you know, he can't write anymore or something like that. And um, he's just writing a letter to his buddy, you know, hey, this is kind of what's going on in the church in the last 30 years, and it's been crazy. And um, so I just kind of thought, 
what if Tom Thompson, who started the refuge, were to write a letter to his buddies about the past 18 years, about all the crazy events and all the things that God had done, it might come out and look something like the book of Acts a little bit, you know what I mean? But it kind of makes it a little bit more personal that Paul was writing a letter to his friend, and he was a guy just like us, serving God just like us, and here we are thousands of, late, of years later serving the same God. All right, so now I'm going to kind of catch us up on um, what's happened. So in the beginning of Acts, Jesus appears after he's resurrected. Um, he tells them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Then he ascends into heaven. That's a pretty big deal. Um, about 120 disciples. This is kind of where the church began. They go back to Jerusalem. They're in the upper room praying. They decide, hey, we need to replace Judas um, who was the disciple that prayed that betrayed Jesus. Sorry, I definitely get a little bit nervous when I'm doing these things, and I definitely will get dry, so I will drink some. Um, but it's, it is water, so um, I promise. <laughs> um, so anyways, they pick another disciple. It's Matthias, and they did that by casting lots. Um, next, there was the day of Pentecost. Um, and just as they, Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a lot of confusion because they were speaking in tongues or unknown languages. And so Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd and he explains that through the former prophets that the coming of Christ was foretold and that Jesus, who they crucified, was both Lord and Christ. And so, Tui, this is kind of where we can start. Acts 2.36 might be on the screen. There we go. Um, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So about 3,000 people were added to the church that day. You know, they were really unified. They met one another's needs. Um, and then after that, it says day by day, the Lord added to their number. And I think that's a little bit significant because we think we see how God uses, you know, today we might think of like evangelistic events. And then also it says day by day. So it's not like God uses one or the other. He uses both and, you know, our daily testimony. We witness to people. People come to Christ. So then as chapter 3 begins, Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray. I think this is kind of maybe where Wes was at, you know, the beautiful gate. He was talking about this big old gate and things like that. And... um so they heal this beggar, and the people are amazed. Um, they begin to gather around, and um, again, Peter addresses the crowd. He informs them, this man they saw healed with their own eyes was healed in the name of Jesus, whom they crucified, whose very life they had traded for the life of a murderer. And so Acts three fourteen to 16 says, but you denied the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So while Peter was testifying about Jesus, um, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, they come up and they're like, what's going on? And they take him into custody. 
and they're not happy that they're talking about Jesus. And so although they were arrested, it says the the number of believers came to about 5,000 men that day. As Wes said last week, that's probably somewhere around 10,000 total with the women and children. Um, And so the next day, they were brought before the rulers and elders and were questioned um, where they got their power. And Peter and John spoke boldly about Jesus when they were questioned. So next, Acts 4.10, it says, Let it be known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Okay, and so then the rulers threatened him twice not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Following that, they were released. Okay, and now the dry part of, of setting up the stage is over. And so now um, we're, we're at today's passage. So I know that was a long trip to get there, but that kind of gives you a background of how we got there. Okay, so Acts 4.23, which is where we started today, it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So again, let's back up a couple verses just so we can see exactly what they had said to them, uh, starting in 18 to 22. It says, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And their response, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because, because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So I'm not going to get real political or anything on you guys, but um, authority figures telling people not to talk about Jesus is not new. And so, in fact, Jesus told us in John 5, 18 to 21, he said that this would be the case. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And so um, there should be a quote up on the screen, but scholar William Barclay, he said this, it might have been thought that when Peter and John returned with their story, a deep depression would have fallen on the church as they looked ahead to the troubles which were now bound to descend upon them. The one thing that never even struck them was to obey the Sanhedrin's command to speak no more. Into their minds at that moment came certain great convictions, and into their lives came a tide of strength. So instead of saying, like, oh, Lord, or woe is me, or what do I do, they came together and remembered, in unity, God's story, that their lives are a continuation of his story, and, that we, and we learn that suffering in his story for his glory is a reason to rejoice. <clears throat> Romans 5, 1 to 5 says this. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So suffering, it's good for us. I mean, I think of James um, chapter 1, 2. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And so often it's hard for us. In fact, I personally feel like it's impossible for us to keep perspective that hard times are good for us. I mean, why, why would we want to go through, unless you're like a sadist, you know what I mean, and, or a sadist, um, we can objectively, you know, I think as, as a parent, um, we can see the benefits of others, you know, of them going through hard times. Like, ah, oh, you're struggling with money, like, not a bad thing. You know, my, my son falls down and he gets hurt, and I'm like, he's learning about gravity, you know what I mean? And so I'm thinking, like, these are good things. And so objectively, you know, and I've, and um, professional counseling has been my vocation for the last several years. So I see people going through these struggles, and I'm just like, like, this is good stuff. Like, it's good for you. And they're just, like, miserable. But you just know that in the long run, you know, or, or like the bad boyfriend that leaves, and you're just, everybody's like, oh, like, it's so good that, it, like, we see it's good. But when you're in the midst of it, um, we get so overwhelmed with our emotions that we're blind to the fact that in the long run, it's going to be good for us. Um, one of my favorite authors, Dr. Henry Cloud, um, he's a co-author of the book Boundaries. He says this about trying to keep perspective. Whatever is happening today, remember it's only one scene in a long movie. Don't treat it like it's the whole story. Keep writing the story. And uh, Wes made us read a book earlier this year, but I'm thankful for it. See, he knew it would be good for us, so he made us read it. And so now um, I'm coming back and, like, preaching about it because um, I see the benefit in the long run. So in the book, A Praying Life, uh, and I think all the deacons, and they all just, you know, I think a lot of them were blown away by the different uh, things in the book. But anyway, Paul Miller talks about the purpose of our forefathers in the Bible suffering in the desert. And so we had Moses suffering in the des desert, the whole nation of Israel suffering in the desert, David suffered in the desert, Jesus suffered in the desert. So anyways, if God used that for the men he used most mightily in the Bible, even his one and only son, you can be sure that he's still using that as a tool today in our lives. So anyways, this is a pretty, a pretty good section, at least I think so. Maybe, maybe it will bomb kind of here, but I think this is an awesome um, description of why the purpose of suffering is so great. Paul Miller says this, The still dry air of the desert brings the sense of helplessness that is so crucial to the spirit of prayer. You come face to face with your inability to live, to have joy, to do anything of lasting worth. Life is crushing you. Suffering burns away the false selves created by cynicism or pride or lust. You stop caring about what people think of you. The desert is God's best hope for the creation 
of an authentic self. Desert life sanctifies you. You have no idea you are changing. You simply notice after you've been in the desert a while that you are different. Things that used to be important no longer matter. After a while, you notice your real thirsts. The desert becomes a window to the heart of God. He finally gets your attention because he's the only game in town. So I believe with all my heart, like this is why, this is why I believe in the refuge. This is why I believe that it's effective because it's a desert place. I mean, Vinton County is pretty much like the Sahara. I think so. And anyway, you know, but it really, it's a desert process. You know, it's a God where, it's a place where God is sanctifying men. He changes them. Things that used to be important, they don't matter anymore. Men, they notice their real thirsts. And in that process, it, open, it opens up a window to the heart of God. So let's move on. Let me get a drink here. All right. It's a good thing I write these things down because I figure if I write it correctly and if I just stay on task for the most part, it's going to come out sounding like I want it to. So even if I just sat and read it to you guys. So anyway, Acts 4, 24 to 28. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I want to point something out here. And I, at, at, the, at the risk of fumbling over myself, and my wife told me not to do it. So, but anyways, okay, so if you look up here, um, in the beginning... So now they're quoting Psalm 2, 1, and 2, um, who said through the mouth of our father David, your servant, um, said by the Holy Spirit. So this is Psalm 2, 1, and 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then continuing on. Okay, so, so here they're done quoting David, Psalm 2, 1 and 2. And what they're saying is, hey, guys, what David was saying in Psalm 2, that's what's happening right now. Because they say, for truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand in your plan had predestined to take place. So they're just so Paul is pointing out to Theophilus and these believers at the time were aware, man, what David said was going to happen, it just came, it just came to pass, you know. Was that better? Okay. All right. Good. All right. Okay. So as we've been talking about over the past several weeks, you know, one of the themes throughout the early church was unity. Um, so we see we see this here upon their return, you know, as they list, lifted their voices together. And so the Refuge Church, which is now Veritas Church, is the second church plant I've been a part of. And so, you know, one of the things that you discover as you church plant is why churches do what they do. Because you ask yourself often, like, why, why do churches sing songs? Why do churches quote scripture together and like read things out loud together. So I think that we see here that it's not just a religious activity. And even the example of the early church was that they were together quoting scripture together. 
they were quoting Psalm 2, 1, and 2. And so um, it's meant to unify us together as the body of Christ with one, one voice, but also we get to speak life together and we get to build faith together. Proverbs 18, 20, and 21 says this, From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruits. So not just a religious activity, but spoken words have power. I'm sure if you've had negative spoken words to you, they have power, and positive spoken words are uplifting. And so when we come together as the body of Christ, we speak life together. And then in Romans 10:17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So speaking life, building faith. So I, the practice of reading scripture together builds faith, speaks life, and really follows the example of the early church, and it's not just a religious activity. So I just felt like that was an important point uh, to extract from the scripture here. All right, so the rest of this section of Scripture, um, scholar John Stott, the late John Stott, he really described it so well that I'm just going to kind of, again, I'm just going to go a quotation of what he had to say. The first word was despotes, sovereign lord, a term used as a slave owner and of a ruler of unchallengeable power. The Sanhedrin might utter warnings, threats, and prohibitions and try to silence the church, but their authority was subject to a higher authority still. And the edicts of men cannot overturn the decrees of God. Next, we observe that before the people came to any petition, they filled their minds with thoughts of the divine sovereignty. First, he is the God of creation, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Secondly, he's the God of revelation, who spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David and in Psalm 2 had foretold the world's opposition to his Christ with, nation, with nations raging, peoples plotting, kings standing, and rulers assembling against the Lord's anointed. Thirdly, he's the God of history, who had caused even his enemies Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and Jews, united in a conspiracy against Jesus to do what his power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This, then, was the early church's understanding of God, the God of creation, revelation, and history, whose characteristic actions are summarized by three verbs. You made, you spoke, you decided. Okay, and so, so this next part, you know, I, I wrote it down, and it's my words, but I, but I really don't want to, like, go off track of what I had written. So I'm going to read, and it's, this won't be up on the screen. But So in other words, God made it, he said it was going to happen, and he used the opposition of those opposed to him to make it happen. So let me say that again. He made it, he said it was going to happen, and then he used the opposition of those opposed to him to make it happen. I mean, that's crazy stuff, really. And it's kind of like too deep to get into right now to go into to that specific thought further. But to think that through many men over hundreds and even thousands of years, God predicted perfectly 
all that would happen with the coming of Jesus. The mathematic probability that this could happen would be a a number so high that it would be unfathomable. But really, as I thought about it, on the other hand, it's really so simple. Because all that happened is what God said would happen. And there really were no odds that it wouldn't happen. It wasn't like playing the lottery and against all odds, somehow you won. I mean, really, there was a one out of one chance that it would happen. There was a 100% probability that what God said would happen would happen. And ultimately, really, there was no way to stop it. In hindsight, we see the absolute futility and ridiculousness of such a notion that whole empires of kingdoms and rulers have taken a stand against the Lord and continue to do so today, like they really have a chance. <clears throat> William Barclay, the scholar, again, he, he comments on the futility. He says, They had the conviction of the futility of man's rebellion. The word translated rage is used of the neighing of spirited horses. They may trample and toss their heads. In the end, they will have to accept the discipline of the reins. Men may make defiant gestures against God. In the end, God must prevail. I mean, here they end up in dog food factories. You know, I mean, if the horse, you know, wants to go against the grade kind of thing. All right. So now to close out real quick here, um, verses 29 to 31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here the believers begin petitioning the Lord with their prayers. They identify themselves as servants. The word used here for servants is slave. And so really what they're asking is, Lord, please grant your slaves um, to continue to speak with boldness. They're not asking for protection. They're not asking for provision. They're asking for God to help them to continue to speak with boldness in the face of suffering. Um, They see the benefit of suffering. You know, and we see, you know, we see here that through the rest of the book of Acts, that that here and the rest of the book of Acts, God answers these prayers. And so the, the one for boldness we see in verse 31 was answered pretty much immediately. You know, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, I mean, they knew that they needed God's help to take another breath, let alone speak his word in the face of adversity and even death with more boldness. And then later in Acts and then throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see some of the others um, request to heal and to perform signs and wonders um, in the name of Jesus. So Acts 5.12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Acts 5.16, this is where they're healed. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Sometimes God 
answers now. Sometimes God answers later. Sometimes it's after our lifetime is over, and sometimes his answer is no. So real quick, just to summarize the main points here today. So God is sovereign. Suffering has a purpose. It's futile. I mean, good luck to you. I mean, if you're trying to work against him. Um, and we should pray about everything. So with that, let's pray. All right. Jesus, you're awesome. We so thank you that you've chosen us to be your servants. Lord, we're so thankful to serve the God who there's no opposition to that could overcome. Lord, you're the one and only true Jehovah God. You're amazing. You're awesome. You're, you're where we get breath, where we get life, where we get strength. And so, Lord, we're so thankful to serve you. Lord, I just pray that your word would sink deep into your heart. Pray that you would bless Wes as he is with his bride away getting some rest. And I just thank you for this body of Christ here worshiping you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Make sure to tune in tomorrow for the next edition of Transformation Radio.